Now this morning, I come to preach a sermon on bold witness. Bold witness. This is the fifth in a series that I began quite a while back on the mission of the church. Uh, I might retitle uh, this series if I had to redo it, and I might call it The Marks of a Healthy Church. After introducing the subject, looking at Psalm 23, we've already looked at reverent and joyful worship, loving fellowship, serious discipleship, and this Lord's Day we come to bold witness. Lord willing, uh, in a coming Lord's Day, I visit sometime this year, we'll consider servant leadership as the fifth mark of a healthy church. Now, I could have chosen a more popular, more common uh, passage as we consider witness, but having preached on a lot of those texts before in various PRC settings, I thought this might be an interesting text to draw out the principles before us relative to bold witness. But I'm going to have to orient you. I've tried to orient you where this sermon comes in this series, now I have to orient you in the book of the book of Revelation. And that's not easy to do uh, in a brief way. Please pray uh, that I can do just that here in the next few minutes. In the book of Revelation, we have a prologue or a preface, and then we all have an epilogue or an ending. In between, we have seven visions. We have one main section of three visions, and then the second section of four visions. In the first three visions, we basically have the conflict between the church and the world. And then in the second section, we have the conflict between Christ and the devil. In this first section, we have three visions. We have the visions of the seven churches, which in verse 119 there, we see that this book is about the things which are. And these seven churches about are the things which are. But also in 119, we learn about, we're told that this book is also going to tell us about the things which shall be. And then in vision two and through, throughout that, we have those things that shall be. Those things that shall be in their interim between Christ's ascension and his return. In vision two, we have the seven seals of persecution. In vision three, we have the seven trumpets of judgment in eight through 11. So four through seven are the seven seals. But in this vision, two of the chapters, or two of the chapters are actually going to talk about what's going on on the throne and what's going on around the throne before God is pleased to tell John, who tells us about these persecutions that will happen in this period between the advents of Christ, between his first and second advent. So in chapter 4, we have three things really spoken of. We have the throne of God discussed in verses 1 through 3 and 5 and 6. We learn something about those that are around the throne, the 24 elders and the four beasts or the four cherubim. And we also see what the four beasts or cherubim and the 24 elders, which represent the old covenant people and the new covenant people, are doing around the throne. And then we come here to chapter 5. 
where we have a sealed scroll, a lion lamb, and songs of praise. We've got a sealed scroll or a book in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, I have have a book or a book or a scroll written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. This is the book of history. This is the council of the triune God from all eternity. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 15, 18. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God had designed everything that would take place before creation. It would happen from creation all the way to Christ's return. This book is sealed with seven seals. These seals are seals of authority. And no one could open these seals but the author or someone of higher authority than the author. But there is no higher authority than God or the three persons of the Godhead to open these seals. So we see this book sealed. Then we see the inability of anyone to open it. The angel asks this question or challenge. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And then there's this, what I would call an intermediate answer in verse 3. There's going to be a final answer here in verse 5 and following. We have this intermediate answer. And no man in heaven nor in earth Neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. No creature can open this book. No creature has authority to open this book. None has the authority to reveal it, much less to execute it. We just saw in Romans 11:14 no man hath been God's counselor i just prayed that portion of scripture no man's been God's counselor no man sat in on the counsels of God that has any knowledge of what's going to happen much less be able to execute it we can't even look upon it without God revealing it to us and giving us the ability to receive it we couldn't even receive it So what's the effect? John says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Nobody can open it. Nobody can read it. Nobody can look at it, the contents of it. So John wept. He wept much. And then in verse 5, we have the slain lion lamb. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, pay attention, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. We first see Christ Jesus as a lion. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, also the root of David. Clearly here, it speaks of the lion of Judah. It's a reference to Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49, 9, and 10. There as Jacob blesses his sons, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, or rest, comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. God had told us that the Messiah, the one that would crush the serpent's head, would come from the line of Judah. And so here we have this reference to that. We also see that he's the root of David. A reference to Isaiah 11. Chapter 11, 10. And there shall come forth a root out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And in that day... There shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign from the pe- for the people. To it, or to him, shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. God had told the, oh, the people of old that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah, through the tribe of Judah, through the family of David. And so, on the throne, The spirits of just men made perfect. Men being anthropos, meaning male and female. And the cherubim and the angels still speak of him, of the line of Judah and the root of David. He's prevailed. He's overcome to open the book or the scroll and to loose it. He's overcome. He's prevailed. Okay. How? In verse 6, and beheld I and beheld, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four elders, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb that had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Here Jesus is portrayed as a lion and as a lamb. He prevailed by being the suffering servant, by being the lamb. What appeared to be defeat at the hands of the Pharisees and Pilate was in fact a victory. Everything was won right there. That was the D-Day, in a sense, of our salvation. Everything else is mop-up operations. It's guaranteed because Christ died for our sins and the Father was pleased with it as demonstrated by him raising him from the dead on the third day. He's prevailed as the suffering servant. He's a lamb, but he's a lamb with seven horns, a picture of authority and strength as we see in the prophets. Daniel 7.24, 
uh, Zechariah 1, 18 through 21. He has seven eyes. They were told are the seven spirits of God. They're not seven spirits, but the picture is its fullness. The spirit is complete. He's sent forth into all the world. And God sees everything. A picture of omniscience. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. And it's he, the lion lamb, who takes the book out of the right hand of him that's upon the throne in verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We've already seen a scroll. We've seen a lion lamb. Here in verses 8 through 13, we see a song of praise. I just read the song of praise or the doxology of the cherubim and the elders. Following that, we have a doxology of the myriad of angels, thousands of thousands of ten thousands we hear, and then the doxology of the whole creation. I want to focus just on verses 8 through 10 for a few minutes before we apply what we find here. Here we have the cherubim and the 24 elders, those representing the spirits of just men made perfect in the Old and New Testaments. We find them from out, all around the globe. All around the globe. This isn't a picture of what will be in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a picture of what is between Christ's first advent and second advent. Even at the time of John writing this, which I think is likely in the late 60s, but it could be later than that, but the late 60s, that's still over 35 years since Pentecost. And do we remember what kind of people showed up at Pentecost? It's interesting, Luke took the time to tell us just how far and wide they came from. In Acts 2, 8 through 11, we read this word about who came. I'll read verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians? and Medes, and Elamites, and dwellers of Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes, and Arabians, 
We do all hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. I mean, even at that time. But let's also remember, there were Gentiles in the Old Testament that we know were saved. How about Uriah the Hittite? We don't often think about him. Ruth the Moabitess, the Queen of Sheba. Just a few examples. There were people from around the globe that were saved prior to Christ's coming. And then at Pentecost, there were many from all around the known world at the time. And yet the gospel's still being taken to places where the gospel's not been heard, even in our day. Right? There are tribes that do not, who've never heard the gospel, who don't have the Bible in their own language, that don't even have a written language, and have never heard anyone preach the gospel in their language. Because there's not a Christian that knows their language. That requires bold witness. Certainly, God, through the Holy Spirit, gave the apostolic church bold witness. In the book of Acts, Luke mentions that the church went forth boldly or waxed bold nine times in the book of Acts. And it's almost always demonstrated by the power of the Spirit, by the Spirit filling them, by the Spirit giving them that boldness, that required boldness. Even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.19 asks the people of God at Ephesus to pray that he might have boldness. Who could be more bold than him besides the man Jesus Christ, the God-man? And yet he still needed daily power from on high to give him the boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel with power. It requires a lot of boldness. It requires us to step out of our comfort zone to talk with somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ and about the mercy and grace that's to be found in him. It's not easy. And it takes endurance. It's not just a a little boldness here or there. Remember how Mark described the great uh, commission. He says, those that believe and are baptized will be saved, but those that believe not will be damned. The sunshine softens certain things and hardens other things. The light of the gospel softens some, but it hardens others. A lot, doesn't it? And that requires us to be enduring. That requires us to increase our faith. And then how about the, how about the parable of the sower? That even amongst those that respond positively to the gospel, many don't last. That's painful. It's discouraging. That's why we have to cry, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You're still in the business of saving men and women and children by the gospel of your grace. God has been and is continuing to save people of all types, all races, all 
tongues, all tribes, people in far reaches of Liberia, Siberia, and even Elkin. Even Elkin. And this county and the surrounding counties. God's gospel is still going forth. But we need to ask that God would give us his spirit in a growing measure that we would be bold in our witness. To not grow weary in well-doing. To spend and be spent for the Lord. He's called us to this. It's not our only mission. Right? I've said the mission of the church is worship. It's discipleship. It's fellowship. But it's also witness. It's not only witness. Right? In, all, in glory, we won't have to witness anymore. But we'll still be worshiping. We'll still be fellowshipping with one another. We'll still be learning from all eternity. God will be teaching us about himself for all eternity. But there will be no more witness required. Witness is not everything about the church, but it is a significant part of the church. I'd like to say it's our exercise. You can have a great diet, but if you don't exercise. Right? And I would contend there's kind of two kinds of exercise, fellowship and witness. We hear from the Lord in his word in discipleship. Right? We study, we want to know more about him, we want to know more about ourselves. And then, what do we do after we've heard from God? We respond to him. We communicate back to him. He's communicated to us. We communicate back to him in song and in prayer. And then we speak to one another. We encourage one another. Sometimes we even have to rebuke one another to ultimately encourage them. And then we speak to those outside. We speak to those within and without the visible church. That's our exercise. But if we just take in, take in, take in. We grow like the Puritans said. Said too many of us, the Puritans used to say, are like people that have rickets. You may not know what the disease rickets is, but people that had rickets back in the 17th century, their heads were disproportionate to their body. Their heads were much larger than they should have been for the size of their body. That's what happens when Christians don't exercise in praise and prayer, in edification of one another, and in witness. So what will a disposition of bold witness look like in a healthy church? I'm going to say it will look like five things, five aspects. First, lifestyle evangelism. Just every day, Sowing seed. A little bit here, a little bit there. When we walk with the Lord, people will know that the Lord's by our side. We're called to be the salt of the earth and light of the world in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Paul says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that he works within us, that we might 
behave like the sons of God and that we might be lights in the world, therefore, and hold forth the word of life. It's not even a command. Paul just assumes that's what Christians do. He's not even commanding us there. He's just saying that's what we do. That's what we do. Paul speaks of this in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. We'll look at that in just a minute. But first, lifestyle evangelism. Just every day you have an opportunity to say something to the person that's checking you out at Ingalls or at Food Lion or wherever you shop, restaurant, what have you. Letting them know if you have opportunity to speak of the Lord, his blessings to you, and it certainly doesn't hurt when it's in the community, the area where you worship, to let them know where you worship. And then that leads to the second aspect of the way a bold witness will manifest itself in a local church. That's parish evangelism. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so then we ought to have some, we ought to recognize that God's placed us in a certain place. And we ought to want to expose those that surround us concerning the gospel. There's some that haven't heard. There's some that have heard a truncated or a false gospel. There are some that have heard a significant significantly solid gospel but maybe have experienced some level of betrayal or abuse or neglect in their local congregation maybe there's been no shepherding maybe the so-called shepherds run off with the secretary maybe things are in disarray maybe they've left the church, the visible church for a season, but maybe there's still in their conscience there's something there. Some of them are true believers, some of them aren't. But there are needy souls in this community. Believers without a shepherd, non-believers without a shepherd. So we ought to be engaged in parish evangelism. Thirdly, we're a connectional church. We're not just a local church that's off by itself. Our members have constitutional rights so that if they were treated improperly here, they have a higher authority to go to. They have a vehicle to get things resolved above the local level. And so... Local churches are at some level all engaged in presbyterial church planting or what I would call revitalization. Are we a church plant? Yes and no. Right? We've been around for a while, but we're still in the planting mode, aren't we? And I think we certainly have that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, after the persecution of Stephen, you have a good portion of the people of God having to be displaced out of Jerusalem, but somehow they keep connection with their elders and the apostles, and the el- apostles and the elders hear that something's going on down in Antioch. They send Barnabas down. Barnabas says, I need more than myself. I need to go get Paul. They come down. That's Presbyterian work. This wasn't independency. It wasn't these people just going off scattered 
and doing their own thing and planting their own independent churches in Antioch. And then in Acts 13, to me it looks like there's at least five churches in Antioch several years later. And then they're prepared to send two of their ministers, the two oldest and most mature, the guys that likely mentored the other three, God decides through them, we're going to call the two, the two that helped us get started in the ministry and sent them out, Presbyterial Church planting. I'm thinking of that mainly within our own cultural bounds. Then fourthly, a, a denomination, a Presbytery, a local congregation engaged in bold witness will also be concerned about cross-cultural witness whether that's national or international. That doesn't mean that each one of us will be on the front lines. We're not all called to be preachers within our own cultural setting, much less preachers in other cross-cultural settings, but we're all part of the same body that's engaged in that activity. We're all partners in that activity. We all have a relation and a concern for people engaged in that. They have a concern with the relationships they're developing in those places. And so we pray for them. So we support them with encouragement and finances. We hold them accountable. And even in our little presbytery, we're trying to do something in South Providence, Rhode Island, amongst Africans and Hispanics. We're trying to help local congregations, and see a presbytery established in Liberia in due season. We're all part of that. We all play some small part of that. And so let me just turn to Colossians 4 briefly and just kind of encourage and relative to that. I think this is important. I think some of us have been exposed to churches where every Every member, every person in the pew is browbeaten to be a witness for Christ. And we begin to think we're all called to be ambassadors for Christ. Well, in that text, Paul, in that passage where Paul refers to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's pretty clear he's referring to himself and his entourage, not every Christian. And here Paul makes it pretty clear about job descriptions, I think. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. He's saying, I and the guys around me, we've got a special call. Your call is to pray for us that we would fulfill our call. That's what your duty is. And then, here's your other duty, walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Have a lifestyle that demonstrates you're a believer, who values time because you know that it's a gift that God's given you, and you use it for good. You don't throw it away regularly, you redeem it. Use it for things that are profitable. You're not constantly wasting it. And let your speech always be seasoned with grace, or, or excuse me, always with grace, seasoned with salt, 
that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. This is back to that lifestyle evangelist. And that's what every believer is called to do, to pray for those that are called to be the ambassadors and to then pray for that, pray for them, but then be that testimony in your life and with your lips in the place that God has placed you, wherever that might be. At school, at work, at play, in your community, wherever you find yourself. And lastly, I would contend that a church that has the disposition of bold witness will also seek <clears throat> to have that witness to the culture and to the civil government. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Paul says that we're to take captive every thought. There's only one place that lawmakers ought to be going to find out what is morally right and what's morally wrong. I would encourage you to consider if you haven't ever read John Murray in his collected writings on Christian world order. An excellent work in terms of seeking to apply gospel motives to our involvement in the culture. We do that as the church gathered. We're not a political action committee as a church. But as we go as individual Christians, we ought to be salt and light even in our culture and our civil government. If Paul says we're to pray for kings and those in authority that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, are we not called to put feet on our prayers? If we want our magistrates to act in that way that the gospel could go forth in power, don't we have other things we can do? Like support godly candidates, vote, be engaged in whatever it might be, a city council, visiting the city council if there's an important issue that's being raised, it's a moral issue, right? Going to school board, when the school board is thrusting or, you know, or, or allowing others to thrust ungodly things within the school, we, will, we may never send our kids to public school. I don't think we will, right? But... 85% of children in America still go to public school. And they become the citizens of the next generation. Their education is still important to us in some respect. It's not the primary thing we should be concerned about, but those are the kind of things that we should have some concern about. We should pray and act as God would lead in those things. That's not all of our evangelism. I'm saying that is a, a part of us being salt and light in a wicked and perverse generation. May we recognize that there's already people in heaven from many places in the globe, and there are still people being added. And God has called us to be part engaged with him in that activity. We're, not engaged, we're engaged in his mission, but he's called us to be actively engaged in it. He's got to do it. We've got to depend upon him. We've got to ask him to translate people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But he's called us to take the gospel to them. And at times he's pleased to bring the Holy Spirit along with us in that meeting 
so that we and that individual and the Holy Spirit are there and they accept the gospel because the scales have been taken from their eyes. The, sh the shackles that have bound them are loosed. Who else could do that but God? He's still in that business. But we've still got to go to the prisoners. We've got to go to the poor and needy and take the gospel to them. For God has called us to that task. That he might make more sheep, more members of his church, more worshipers, more disciples that might fill heaven and might eventually with us fill the new heavens and the new earth. Let us pray. Please rise for prayer.